Hello, everyone. This is James, and welcome to another week of Anecdotes. Uh, before we get started, I just want to give you, the audience, a quick production disclaimer. During the post-production of this episode, we noticed that the audio tracks were a little bit off. Please bear with us. We're still a relatively new podcast, and we are still learning many things about editing and production. Please do not let that diminish from the story you're about to hear, because trust me, it is well worth your time. And with that, I'll turn it over to Christine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Antidotes Episode 2. Thank you so much for everyone that listened to Episode 1 and gave us a good rating on iTunes. Episode 1 was funny. It was lighthearted. It was a little bit crazy. So, of course, we are going to do the complete opposite for Episode 2 and go into something a little bit darker and depressing. So, this is your warning right now. There will still be the same amount of swearing, but definitely a tough topic again, but maybe not as much fun. So switch on over to a different podcast if you don't want to be kind of bummed out, but this is a really important topic in medicine. So I'm really happy to be talking about it, and I'm glad to have one another old partner, AJ, on with me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. AJ, welcome. <laughs> so AJ and I were together in EMS a long, long time ago again. And you are now a firefighter, so congratulations. We started working together when you had yeah, just gotten your months. license as well. I think when we first met, the first call we did together, I almost killed you. Yeah. Uh, if that's correct. Coming around the corner on the, the base, you decided it was a good idea to try and go in excess of 50 miles an hour. And uh, the door didn't secure itself, and I almost rolled out. So it was fun and exciting. I, I'm going to change that story to the newbie didn't um, close the door in time. <laughs> and I was maybe going 30 miles an hour Call it in what the you driveway. Will. That's okay. That's hey, it. That's his, it. History is written by the victors, right? I don't know who, which one of us is the loser here. <laughs> okay. So you are the one that picked this story that we're going to talk about today. Okay. So why don't I let so you get started? There are some parts of this story that I recall very, very well. And some parts that might be a little bit foggy for me. The big part is, and and we did this, we did oh, this absolutely. together. Yeah, if I remember. So if, if I'm misremembering anything, feel free to jump in, please. Yeah, yeah, okay. The one thing I do remember vividly about us working together is we worked the impact shift. So when most trucks went in, went in at six or seven in the morning, we came in at nine, which means when we get in, everyone else is out getting it handed to them already. So we get there, and, you know, we're wide awake because we got to sleep in till seven and this and that. And then we'd always get fucked. Like every time, without fail, we'd walk in the door and within two seconds of sending us somewhere. It seemed like every time yeah, you'd be like, oh, Chris and Ager getting in in five minutes and find some bullshit for them. Every time. Exactly. Yeah. So it, would, it got to the point where we'd, we'd be sitting go. at the, the computer waiting to punch in five minutes of, because that was the earliest we could, to run outside and check everything we could before they called us. And we did that. You know, 8.55, we punched in, we were outside, and we heard it come in well across the city for what was uh i think it came in as a a code i think they knew from the the phone call that it was going to be a, a, a dead person or you know knocking on the door at least am, am i correct did you remember yeah so for uh, those of you that are not in medicine a code would be a cardiac arrest um so no heartbeat uh not breathing yeah i think it came in as a some kind of unresponsive yeah. possible code but there was and, uh, no like CPR in progress we were, or anything. We were the only truck in the city that was available. Everyone else is at medicals at the hospital already somewhere else. So uh, 
I remember you flew there. Like it was well across the city and you got us there. I mean, re- respecting every possible speed limit sign and stop sign and red lights. Of course. <laughs> of course, right. as I always did. Um, I was always and, a very uh, law-abiding I remember, uh, medical professional. When we finally got there. Still am. Yeah. Yeah, you had a great response time considering all the, I, the red lights you stopped at. Complete stop, wait, and then proceed with caution. No, but I remember worked. getting there and yeah, look, look, look. seeing uh-huh. people we see on a regular basis come walking out and like literally tell us, like, yeah, the guy's dead. Just call it. it like, so go in and now you have to document everything. And they told us he's definitely not workable. And we walk in. That was the fire we've, department. We've always had good rapport with. Local fire you know, we've never had an issue yeah. with One them. The but they're like, all right, guys, that's we it. And we go walking in and it definitely wasn't the case. We walked in and they had. A- yeah. And, the, and a lot of times like they're right, though. Like you're like, oh, OK, it's a sudden, which is, means they're they have passed away. Like there's nothing we can do. There's rigor mortis. There's lividity, which is the pooling of the blood. Like, you know, OK, we just have to pronounce them and go. And so we usually trust their opinion, especially in this department and those guys. We in the past, you know, and I remember that as soon great. as we walked in, right. we saw. So, but this, this a bunch of family different. members. I don't know if they all lived there or what, but they also had I can't remember if it was a visiting nurse or a a CNA, whoever it was that was there. Uh, he was yeah, on the first floor of the like house, but if I remember, he, he was in the doorway in the very back. This is, I remember but vividly. Like you walk in into the doorway. house, there was stairs to the, like straight ahead, and then a living room off to the left that kind of went into a kitchen. And then the very, like behind the kitchen was this gentleman's makeshift bedroom, kind of. And I think they did it because he was older. And I think they did it to make it easier for him or the family, whoever it was made for. Mm-hmm. But it was yeah. a, a bedroom kind of, like you said, on the first floor, tucked in the back. And he was, once you get like through the doorway, he was just right there on the floor. Oh, yeah. That's what you want to say. No, no, no. no one had moved The thing that struck me is as soon as you walked in. Which is normal. That's You, know, you, you could yeah, see against he had some color to him like you know you know the difference between when you walk in and you see someone and their color is drained as in they don't feel good or their color is drained as in they've been dead for a day or two yeah so there's the thing that i would always tell the my emt students like nursing students or whomever people at parties uh there's dead and then there's dead enough which is like almost dead which is the cardiac arrest or you know no pulse something's really really bad but then there's dead enough which is yeah we can call it we don't have to work them lividity Mm -hmm. rigor you know they look gray there's nothing going on and nothing's bringing them back he was kind of dead this is my first time and um it was memorable you you can see that from the doorway but this is your first code (laughs) first rodeo the totality of Um, it yeah no i get it it's it's pretty funny laughing at the fact that this man was in cardiac arrest i'm just laughing at several years down the road it's it's comical uh that this was your first code the yeah yeah, just this it's it's comical when you look at it like look at me comical in the um, this guy not his family horrificness of it funny when you look at no one else but it's funny when it happens to me yeah this gentleman older much older, and we can't say ages um, because it's a HIPAA violation to say something over the age of, I believe, 89 or 81. But anyway, so he's he's older and he's very, very small. He's cachectic from what I recall. Cachectic is just very, very frail and tiny. So I think I'm like, all right, cardiac arrest, he's not a sudden. And we go and look at him, definitely not a sudden. And I'm like, okay, there's no lividity. There's no rigor. 
there are no injuries incompatible with life, but there's also no pulse and no breathing. So we got to do something about this. Like, we can't just be like, oh, yeah, that's nice. There's a body in the kitchen. We we got to work now. And the fire department is already, like, piecing out. And so I had done, like, dozens and dozens of codes at this point. So I, <laughs> I, I start doing CPR on him. That is correct. And I think that's how this goes. I'm trying. This is like many, many years ago. So I remember starting CPR. Is that correct? And I remember starting CPR and he was so small and so frail that when I, when you do CPR on adults, you do it with two hands and one hand is on top of your dominant hand. But my hands covered his entire chest. And like, I have larger hands for a woman. I don't have Seinfeld man hands, but I mean, sometimes I joke that I do. They're I don't have like massive paws, like, but my hands covered this guy's whole chest. And like the first couple of compressions, I remember just breaking every single rib in his chest. And you can feel that crunch on the entire way down. And I like, I've done it before, but it was just like, okay, like that first compression, like, oh God. And then it just kind of keeps doing it with every single one. And you feel that crepitus. I ended up stopped doing two-handed compressions because he was so small. Like I ended up doing one-handed compressions because he was kind of the size of a child. And once all the ribs had broken, it was too much pressure to do it with two hands. And when you're doing CPR like that, when there's two hands, your fingertips are basically off of the patient. You're only doing it with the um, palms of your hands. But when you do it one-handed, your fingertips touch the chest and you can kind of you feel more and it kind of almost felt like I was like reaching into his chest. It was very weird feeling and you can just feel everything. And I just remember as the rest of the scene is unfolding. Yeah, this is when I found out. I'm uh, doing this and basically feeling I I asked him one last time anyone saw him, you know, up around. Then you started to talk to the family. And this is when they told me he was just eating breakfast. So this went from somebody thinks this guy's been dead for quite a while to we had him talking 10 seconds before we called 911. So now it went from he was kind of dead to he's just barely dead. Slight. And I'll have and I'll have to say like we're telling the story and I'm Chris. just describing all the stuff about doing compressions while all of this is going on while you're finding all this out while you're talking to the family. We are we are BLS, we're basic life support. We are talking to dispatch we are calling it in though it's a cardiac arrest we are asking for als while you are talking to the family figuring out the story and i'm doing the compressions and i'm talking about that entire thing we are we are multitasking putting in an opa we're bagging him all of this other stuff is happening too so it's not just like you're sitting there chatting with the family members and i'm just doing compressions staring off into space there's a lot of other stuff going on that it would in a normal code we're also trying to figure out a way to like get this guy out of there, like get him on a backboard, get an AED. Like there's a lot of other stuff in the background that we're not necessarily talking about just for anyone that is listening. So, you know, so So you're talking to the family. So we're going to Hollywood this. We're doing all the important stuff. You just don't see it. We're just telling you about all the stuff you need to know about. Yeah. The important stuff. I mean, you don't really care that turned AED on plug in pads next to flashing light. You know, you don't, you don't care about that shit. This is the important stuff. The family tells you. Yeah. Uh, they told me that oh, he has a DNR. He has a DNR. He has a DNR. Okay, great. I need it. You need to give it to me. We don't know where it is. Yeah. So this, a DNR, for anyone that does not know, is a do not resuscitate order. That means that we do not do CPR uh, on someone. And it's very common for people that have chronic illnesses or 
that are elderly to have these. And we want to make sure that we honor those wishes. It is so important for us to honor those wishes. If you don't want CPR, if you don't want heroics and life-saving measures performed on you, we don't want to do them because they are very violent. I mean, I just talked about what compressions felt like and it gets so much worse than that. We, we don't want to do that. You know, it's, it's unnecessary. So the family was under, understandably really upset with us. We had to keep doing CPR. We didn't really have a choice. What were they saying to you at this point? What do you remember from here on out? Uh, this is when it gets a little foggy for me because I was trying to not listen to them while still being respect respectful of them, but not of their wishes because the DNR does, is not valid. It's not like I'm trying to be a jerk to them, but it, if I don't do my job, I will lose my job because it's a matter of legality. Right. And you lose your livelihood and your chance of ever working in the field again. Right. And also it's, we don't know that that's what this gentleman's wishes were. We don't know that he had a conversation with a provider and expressed those wishes. The family may have pulled this form out, printed it off, um, because you can print them online, filled it out, and never got a doctor to sign it or anything. Right. I mean, obviously, that's a very extreme case, but we don't know. Obviously, this is an extremely tense situation, but we're trying to be as respectful as we can well, we're trying to do the right thing. So we're also trying to just kind of get out of there because this happens all the time in EMS. Things can get violent when family members don't like the way that their family, their the patient's being treated. Even though you're doing all the right things, they don't agree with you. Right. And not only are we trying to not be rude to the family, package this gentleman, get him outside, and continue to do CPR. Yeah, so. with not help because the fire department had bailed yeah they 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 cut rope quick i think the cops were there nope we called for the cops because well i think the fire department had called for the cops because they thought it was a sudden which you need the police for until the me gets there yeah or the um funeral home or whatever yeah yeah at this point i remember it was just you and i and we were do what we could to get him to the front of the house and still do. So like we were kind of sliding him while doing CPR on the backboard, still had him hooked up to the the defib and everything. So we're just kind of gliding him the best we can. I think we just ended up picking him up. Well, I remember we, um, we got to the front door, we picked him up. And as we went to go, our medics showed up literally right behind me. Yes. And this all happened very quickly. This is within a matter of less like five minutes. Yeah, maybe even 10 minutes. Like five or ten minutes, because basically we're doing CPR. We get him on the backboard. We're he's very little and very light, so we're trying to hold him on this backboard, which is this long, flat plastic thing, to so that we can carry him out. Throwing all of our bags on our back, putting the ED on him between his legs, trying to get him out the door, breathe for him. But you can't carry him with two people and do CPR and bag him so get through the family do all of this so you have to stop cpr you're not supposed to stop cpr but we didn't know that anyone was coming to help us the fire department wasn't coming so we're you know at this also was getting a little bit dangerous in there for us with this family member these family members yelling at us so for us the safest place is in the ambulance where we can deliver the best care you never want to stop cpr but to extricate sometimes you have to to get him out and so also i think it was like okay AED's analyzing, we're going to, we would stop CPR anyways. So we picked him up and moved while that was happening. And this is years and years ago. So the exact details of how it happened are foggy. (laughs) At best. So anyways, the paramedics get there. We get him in the back of the ALS truck and they get lines going. They start, they give him epi, they uh, epinephrine. 
which is the ACLS protocols. They get like a shockable rhythm out of them. They defib them. And we get fucking pulses back. Because why wouldn't you? Because fuck. Uh, and like out of hospital cardiac arrest, survival rates are so low. I, having worked dozens and dozens of codes, most of the times we don't get pulses back. And if you do get pulses back, they end up getting called. It's brief. They end up getting called in the ED anyways. People don't survive this. Usually they've been down for a long time. They haven't had CPR. It's You just don't survive it. So we're like, okay, we're working this code. He's a DNR. Maybe, hopefully he just won't survive. And the family will get this was his his wishes were actually to be a DNR. You know, life will work out in the way that he doesn't come back for this and he'll get what he wants. Um, and we still follow the rules. That's not what happened. Nope. Um, and I don't want to say oh, we were hoping that he would die in that we wanted to wish him harm. We wanted to follow his wishes if those were her, his wishes. But pulses. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like we were far from the hospital either. Unfortunately, we were we were like five minutes from the hospital. So we this was in the city. So we were really close to a community hospital. Pulses came back and then we got him there. And then they, you know, they they did what they do in the ER. He was in a perfusing rhythm. And. Then this is where it got bad for you and I. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, I remember because. We took him in, and within a few minutes, the nurses were like, oh, this is great. You know, he looks stabilized. You guys did Wow, you saved him. And we're like, oh, my God, that's awesome. And then we look at each other, we're like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Okay. there's you got to be fucking kidding me. And we told the doctor about the DNR, and he was like, because we we brought the copy with us. Because if he had been, if he had not had pulses when we arrived at the ED, the ED doc could have called it and would have called it. And said, yeah, we will honor this. It wasn't signed, you know, but the the doc can make that decision. And I, as a nurse practitioner now, can make those decisions. But EMT Christine definitely could not make those decisions. And because of this call, when I talk to my geriatric patients or anyone that's, you know, you know has a terminal illness, I, I bring up this call to them. Obviously not in this kind of detail, but I say, you know, hey, you, I'm signing your DNR or I, you know, we are talking about end of life. You need to have this signed copy with you at all times. I talk about this call several times a month in very short detail. I'm like, Hey, I've seen what happens when you don't have this paperwork with you. EMS cannot honor it if you don't have it with you. Put this on your fridge, put this in your wallet, put this in your wife's purse, put it everywhere. But because he had pulses, we can't kill him. Uh, like you can't take that away. So now everyone's congratulating us on a save, which would usually be a great thing, but it's the kind of the exact opposite. And the juxtaposition of this call with another event that had happened with us too was also really unsettling. So I don't know if you want to talk about this or do you want me to bring it up? So yeah, uh, another EMT that worked a lot, uh, in the same area as us, he worked. I, I can't remember how long he worked Monday days, but I know we saw him a lot. He was a. Uh, he was one of my old partners. And he was one of those guys that every time they'd call me and say, "Hey, can you come in and work this shift?" 
oh no, you know, I just got off. You know, I have something I want to do. Uh, oh, you know, he really needs a part. Oh, it's him. Yeah, I'm on the way. Like he's the kind of kid like everybody wanted to work with. Great kid, great guy, really smart, and just I mean, you talk to anyone who knew him. If you could find Sweet. if you could find two people who had one bad thing to say about him between them, I'd be impressed. They were dicks. They were the they were the problem. When you work in EMS, you meet a lot of egos and you'll find people that are like, Oh, let me tell you how cool I am or um some some people you don't always get along with. This this guy was not that person. He was in it to help people. You know, whenever you watch in the crew room and you saw him there, you were you're always really happy to see him. You're like, hey, what's up? And, you know, you would sit on those shitty couches and chat with whatever you were watching, like Law and Order for the seven millionth <laughs> time that was on TV at 2.30 yeah. in the afternoon. He was a really great guy to work with. He was a great EMT. And he never had to say how and, good he was at anything because he let his patient care speak for itself. And he let his actions, you know, in personal life speak for themselves so he never was the kind of guy who'd be like oh, i play guitar and i'm awesome he'd be like hey i play guitar and i'm playing this show like if you want to come by cool whatever and he'd, he'd go and he would just rock your face off but he never bragged about it he would just do it and, you know and he, that's rare especially in ems to have someone not brag and actually be able to back it up yeah it's just very a genuine person a genuinely kind person with no ulterior motives i would say and unfortunately we buried him the day before this call at 21 years old uh i i didn't go to that funeral because i was working and everyone else uh at the company was at the funeral so but i had worked with him before you had started the company too um as a partner on like one of my shifts and the way he passed away was that he had decided to pick up an overnight for somebody I think he picked it up. I don't think it was his regularly scheduled one. I don't believe so. And because, and, and this kind of speaks to the person that he was to get someone to pick up your overnight. <laughs> like, I mean, hell has to kind of freeze over. You got to be the nicest person to be like, yeah, I'll volunteer to take your overnight. Not only that, but take um, your overnight while you're doing clinicals. Yeah. He was in paramedic school. So he had left clinicals and was on his motorcycle on a very, very busy highway in Massachusetts and got struck by a drunk driver in the um, middle of the night on the way to an overnight. And what was terrible about that in relation to this call was that he ended up being a traumatic arrest on the highway, which is a cardiac arrest, obviously due to trauma. And... So the the fire department in that municipality of the highway, you know, came and, and worked him. Um, they worked their asses off him and they, they saw him in uniform. Here we are bringing back to life this old guy that doesn't want to be alive. And our friend couldn't be saved uh, a week before when he should have been saved. So it was um, it was a rough feeling. Yeah. That day. To, to say the absolute least, that was uh, probably one of the shittiest feelings I've had, you know, professionally. To I remember just being so angry. Yeah, uh, that, that's actually I, as I was telling you the other day when we were chatting, uh, 
I wasn't feeling good that weekend. I had a respiratory infection and stuff like that. And I kind of used that as my excuse to go home after that call because, you know, it just had it in my head that seeing, obviously we all know the fragility of life, but seeing someone who, from what we were told, wants to no longer be alive, get brought back because of us. Whereas there's this, you know, young, strapping, otherwise healthy young lad who gets into an accident and is taken from us. I just, having seen that, I just didn't think my head was in the right place to to be where I needed to be for any patients we had that day. Obviously for, for your safety, because having, as we both know, having a, a partner who isn't, you know, their, their A game 100% of the time is a liability to you. It's like a false sense of security, you know? I just... Yeah, you you rely on your partner for everything and your partner needs to be there for you. I should have gone home that day. Just and I didn't. You know, you work in private EMS, they're not really that kind about you taking time off, uh even if it's for a pretty legit reason. I just I was so angry the rest of the day. And I I saw we we went to calls and we whoever replaced you, I don't even remember who it was. I remember kind of just being bitchy. I was I was like, I don't want to tech any calls. And teching is when you're in the back and you're treating patients. I was like, I'm just going to drive so I have the least amount of human interaction with a patient because I'm not a compassionate person right now. I went home and I drank a lot <laughs> that, that night because we were off at five. I think we got out late too. And this was like the first call of yeah, our day. Yeah, this was like before shift even started really. Yeah. So I worked another eight hours after that. It's just it's just an uneasy, angry feeling that that sticks with you. Um, and then when you think back on it, it's like, yeah, oh. And I, I'm just making non-words to describe it because that's how you describe it. It's really hard to, you know, express what it's like to be in Absolutely that situation. Is. And I, <laughs> my dog agrees. He he's really upset about this too. <laughs> And the medics were pissed too. And obviously they had worked, you know, we, we work with the medics really closely. They, they are really good friends. They, they knew our coworker and they knew the code and they were mad too. They were on 24s and they went back and worked. but that's EMS. And sometimes you have to deal with stuff like that. I don't know what ended up happening to that patient. I, I know the doc in the ER made him a DNR that if he were arrested again, they wouldn't do anything. I don't know that he was neurologically much of anything after that. I don't know. They shipped him out to an ICU pretty quickly. We don't get to follow up on cases in EMS a lot of the time. It's just a big question mark that hangs over the call. It's unfortunate not, never knowing the, the outcome. Yeah, that's one thing I love about being an NP now is that I really get to follow cases. You get to find out whether your clinical decision making was correct and what something turned out to be. And that's how you learn. Also how you develop kind of rapport with patients and you learn. It's a really nice part of it that you don't see in EMS. And you also get to see like recovery and, you know, transformation. You get to see like, you get more reward out of it because you see what all of your hard work did. It's easy to kind of get bitter and burned out in EMS when you're like, I just sweat and dragged you out of a house and did all this crazy shit and just dumped you in an emergency room. And you never get get any gratitude or anything from it, and because you just leave, you were like you. It was like you were never there. When once you become a provider that actually gets to follow someone, you do get to see, you know, gratitude and 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 stuff. So it's it's a very different world, and it's so easy to see why people get burned out in the US. Yeah, that's what I always tell people. Like we have 
kids at the the firehouse who always say, oh, you know, I want to get my EMT. It's a good thing to have. And I always say, yeah, it is a great thing to have. And some who have gone out to guide it always say, oh, you know, this could be a good job to, you know, work on the side, make a little money. I say, just don't. <laughs> like, don't. Don't lose your skills, but for the love of God, don't do it. Because then you'll get old and crotchety, and as we say, you'll be salty well before you have a need to be salty. Just use it at the station. Don't work there. They don't care about you. You don't get to find out the outcome. You never get to hear the good news or the bad news. And sometimes you you want the bad news just so you know what you could have done different or done better for next time. And you always want the good news because it kind of makes it worth doing, but you never really get any of it. And you get shit pay, you get shit on, and it's just not worth it most of the time. It's a great job, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone could be EMTs. No, I, I mean, I, I truly loved doing it for very brief moments of time. I'm really glad I did it. It was a great stepping stone for me. It was a, it was a great way to get a lot of experience and then move on to being a nurse and then being a nurse practitioner. But there are people that do this for an entire career and god bless them because we need the people with that amount of experience that are on fire departments you know running those medic trucks we need those people doing 911 we need them in EMS but we also need to be looking out for them because yeah i did it for 10 years and i am but you earned as that fuck. like <laughs> oh i did earn it but you know you don't do 10 years of that and come away okay so imagine doing 30 years of it. We have to be looking out for the EMS providers because it's rough on your body. It's rough. Like I have a shoulder right now that I can barely raise above my head because of lifting an EMS <laughs> that is now flaring up again when I went to the gym. And it's also rough on your mind. It's also very rewarding when you do the when you have those saves and when you do make a difference and you do find out in that brief interaction that you made a difference and the adrenaline rush. That's what you live for. That's why people take the shitty pay and the bad backs and the, the shit social and holidays life, away and stuff. The benefits. We could go on. We could we could do another half hour just on why not to do it. So I posted the first episode and a listener in Australia. Yeah, there's someone in Australia. She was like, Oh my gosh, you guys did that and you got paid $13 an hour? That's t-. she goes, I don't understand cost of living in the United States. Is that living wage and i was like that's cute. no absolutely no <laughs> that's cute that's why we worked 24 hour shifts 32 hour shifts 36 hour shifts longer and you just kept going and you didn't have much benefits and this is private ems there's volunteer ems where they don't get paid and then there's the fire departments and boston ems and the municipal ones where they they make a better wage and they have better benefits and stuff so in, in the united states it really can vary but still, there's not much as far as mental health care designed for EMS and firefighters. And we're finally starting to realize that we need it. We need it really badly because PTSD is rampant. Far too rampant. Among um, our first responders. Well, this, is, this is great segue. I am certified now in the PTSD, uh, CISD, so anything, post-traumatic stress, uh, critical incident stress debriefing, critical incident stress management, suicide uh, prevention, post-vention, and intervention. Um, I make it known to everyone, all the guys I work with know there's, uh, there's only, I believe right now, four guys on my job out of 110 or so that have the training I have. Uh, and I, I tell everyone in hopes that if they ever need it, they know to come to me. They know that I won't say anything. Uh, but the flip side to that is 
we're all really, really manly men. And we'll be the first one to tell you that. And we're, we're never going to reach out and say we need help with stuff. So, you know, I, I have to count on my the training that I've got, that, that I've been blessed to get, uh, ensure that everyone's kind of acting the way they're supposed to be acting. Nobody's acting, you know, erratically or unlike themselves to, to jump in and say, hey, I know you had this call the other day. Do you want to talk about it? Hey, I know you saw this fucked up situation. I'm here. So, you know, now I'll just use this this broader voice that I've recently found, thanks to Antidotes and you, Chris. Um, if any, if anyone out there at all ever needs anything to talk about, don't reach out. I don't hesitate to reach out. And not just to me, obviously to me, if you can, if you can reach me, please do. Anyone, you know, just grab your partner. Hey, I, I had a shitty call last shift when you weren't here. Because your partner's going to go, oh, okay, well, you know, we'll talk about it. And then they're going to go and they're going to get the supervisor and they're going to do whatever they need to do. You know, they, they're going to reach every avenue. They're going to reach out to every avenue they have to ensure that you get the treatment you need because you're the one that's always there to give it to everyone else. So that's my, my spiel. So don't ever hesitate to reach out. Everyone always cares. We're here for you. That's so awesome. I didn't realize you had done that. We need more of it. That's also part of my motivation for doing the podcast. I wanted to kind of normalize the insanity that we see in medicine and therapy through storytelling. Everyone, not just doctors, have crazy stories. Nurses have crazy stories. EMTs, firefighters, everyone has them. And this is what it's like to be us and going through this stuff and talking about it. Maybe you hear a story and you go, oh, yeah, I had a crazy call like that, too. I had that conflict and I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that's dealt with this. I mean, I will tell you straight up on this podcast, I have had horrible nightmares from EMS. I have like certain things that after working in EMS, I always do. I am terrified of someone dying in bed next to me because we've pronounced so many people dead like in the morning after like their spouse wakes up and the other person is just like dead. It has been dead in bed all night. And then they like make breakfast and then they like would call EMS and we would go, oh no, you've been sleeping next to a dead body all night. So that's like just this fear I have that that's going to happen because we would do it all the time. You're not the only one. Reach out to your department. If you're no longer in a department, reach out to someone that specializes in PTSD for first responders. EMDR is this amazing therapy for PTSD. It's, It's really good. It's meant for PTSD and it helps you reprocess really traumatic memories. But we have finally started to realize that treating PTSD in first responders is not the same as treating it in other traumatic events like the military. You know, when the military deploys, you're gone. You're out of the country. You're not at home. It's for a brief period of time. But when it comes to first responders, you do this day in and day out. And it's repeated trauma every day for 30 years. That's a very different experience than going into combat and getting shot at where you're supposed to be hurting someone versus when you're a firefighter and you're supposed to be saving someone and you can't. I mean, yeah, a lot of these populations overlap, but the traumas are different. And so you need specialized treatment for that. So we're finally, as a medical community, recognizing it. And so it's so awesome that you're doing that. Are there a lot of uh, firefighters up in Massachusetts that are certified I was actually very grateful. Like um, it was a, an organization that was started by several firefighters who are also military veterans um, that work in, the, in around my area. Um, so it's the Fraternal Order of Firefighters and Military Veterans, and their website, if anyone's interested, is foffmv.org. And 
they did the training. So I was able to uh, talk to my chief and get to, you know, go for work to get this training done. When I went, there was only maybe 15 people in my class. We were, I think, the fourth or fifth class that they had put on for this this specialized training. Um, But it was great to hear the instructor, who was a retired police chief. I can't remember from where, but he was a, a very, very knowledgeable, great guy. And he told us the first class they did, it was like four people. And they only knew about it because they all knew each other and the instructor. And then the next time it was like they say in Wayne's World, you know, each of them told two friends and they told two friends and they told two friends. So by the time, you know, four or five classes down the road, there's, you know, 15, 18, 20 of us, whatever it was. And they've done, I believe, three or four classes in the year and a half since I did my training. And each one is more people and more people to the point where they can't accept any more people in the class because the classes are getting too big. So now they're having wait lists for the classes. So it's good to see that people are, you know, almost literally knocking down the door to get, you know, certified in this. And I think one of the biggest, biggest benefits, or what makes this so great is all the guys want to look out for each other and to steal uh, a military term. I'm sure you've heard it is I am my brother's keeper. You know, never have I been so, so glad and so proud to go sit in a classroom for, you know, seven or eight hours a day for a week straight to hear somebody talk when I'm such a terrible student than I was to go and be able to know what to look for in my brothers and sisters and not have to sit there and go, I know something's wrong. Tell me, I know something's wrong. Tell me, you know, now I can just say, Hey, is it this? Let's talk about it. And it, you know, I'm glad that there's a lot more guys and girls who are, you know, pushing to do it. So not not that I don't want the burden on me, of course, because I'm, I'm happy to do it. Happy to look out for, you know, anyone who's ever worn any of the uniforms ever or anyone who just needs help with anything. But it, it's it's great to see it's getting statewide. And like you said, it's getting normalized and it, it's good that people are talking about it's it because now it's one of those things. You know, I've had not a lot of instances, luckily, but I've had a few where, you know, we come back from a particularly shitty call one actually only two or three weeks ago and I really can't get into any specifics, but it was one of the worst calls I've ever done. And we get back and I I grab, you know, my officer and I said, Hey, you know, I know this is a shitty situation to be in. Do you want to talk about it? And he's like, No. I'm, okay. Well he said, Well he's like, I had to push it only for about ten or fifteen seconds. He goes, I really don't want to talk about it. And then he started talking about it. So, you know, it probably ten minutes of him just talking about everything that sucked about it and why he didn't want to be there. And finally, after 10 minutes or so, he stopped and he goes, I'm talking about it, huh? I go, yeah. He goes, thanks. Like, dude, no problem. This is why I'm here. Like, this is, I keep telling everyone, (laughs) I don't want to sit here and go, and how does that make you feel? That's not what I'm trained to do. What I'm trained to do is help you kind of get through to the other side. And, you know, as terrible as it sounds, I'm not trying to dehumanize anything, but it helps us make it work and not, something personal you know it, it, you always need that person who can get you to be able to say okay this is just something that happened at work this isn't something overly traumatic i mean it is but you need to get over that hump and that's what i want to help everyone do so i was lucky that i got my lieutenant and the other kid that works with us over that hump pretty quick and uh then they came by and they're like do you need to talk about it I'm like no i don't need to talk about it i'm fine of course i don't need to talk about it and then i talked about it and <laughs> But it was funny that they, they finally went, 
I just oh, talked about shit. it with you guys. This is what you're like. This is <laughs> what you want to do. Like, this is why you went for that training. This is why you push for that training. This is why you're trying to get other guys who want it to fight to get to go to it. Is because now instead of it festers for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I'm not going to say it always happens, but your performance at work might slip. You might be, you know, a little distant at home. I don't want to say you're going to yell at your wife and kids, but you or your husband, wife, kids, whatever. You're not going to take it out on them, but you might not be yourself and they'll recognize that and they'll, they'll think it's something they did. So instead of have you take it home or suffer professionally over weeks and weeks and weeks or you drink or you drink or you try and compensate with something else. Or you feel withdrawn or you're like, oh, I right. just need to relax and I'm going to have a glass of wine or five, which some people do. Like there's a lot of drinking in medicine, especially because you're like, I need to decompress. And that's not a healthy, healthy coping mechanism either. It is so much healthier to be like, hey, man, this fucking sucked. And you don't have to have like a really articulate reason of like, wow, this really upset me because, you know, I could really empathize with this part of the call or something. You can just go up to someone and be like, this sucked and I don't feel good about it. And that's all you have to say. And that can start the conversation. And then you can go, oh, yeah, I feel better about it. The biggest piece of advice I have always given to my trainees when I was an FTO, when I was teaching in EMS, is that it's okay that it bothers you. I would have traumatic calls and say, oh, I'm a young girl. Because when I started in EMS, I was 18. And once you've done a year or two, you become a senior EMT. So I would be 19 or 20, female, blonde, and the most experienced EMT on the truck. To be taken seriously, I thought I had to be just as tough as these old men and grizzly, mustachioed firefighters. And, you know, you go to something really traumatic and somebody's dead and I'd be like, oh, it, it shouldn't bother me. It doesn't bother them. It shouldn't bother me. This this can't bother me. And then it would kind of just really start to eat away at me. But as soon as I realized, oh, this bothers me and I'm glad it bothers me because it means I'm human and it means I have a human response to tragedy and it means I can empathize and it makes me a more compassionate caregiver and better at my job, then it stopped bothering yep. me because I was able to kind of process it. So it's okay that stuff bothers it's you. It's supposed to. That makes you human. And that was perfectly stated. Just it, let it out. It can't be <laughs> However you want to do that, that let it out. It, you don't need a reason to be upset. It just makes you human. And it's one of those things that can help you learn who you are, you know, is what bothers you. And you don't need to explain it. I mean, if you're upset, you're upset. And just let that be that. You don't have to try and justify anything to anyone. Yeah. And anyone that's been on this job for a hot minute knows that something's going to bother someone more than someone else. And no one's going to make fun of you for like, oh man, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have been bothered by or, that. What do you mean? You're weak? Like or the people that make fun of you for that shit are waggers. Yeah, you're either a whacker or no a monster. One of those, those two. Are the people that pretend to be And I don't want to know you yeah, if that's the case. Either or you're either faking it or you're just the devil. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to work probably you. You'd suck. <laughs> you shouldn't you probably shouldn't be caring for human life either. Well I really hope there are more programs like that, not just in Massachusetts, but around. I would be very interested to find out if there's any in Virginia uh, where I live, but I have no idea. We will have to post a link to that organization on our Facebook page. Give them a little bit of a shout out because that's awesome work that they are doing. And thank you so much for, thank you for having talking me. about what you do a lot of fun. with them. 
or what they, you know, how they trained you and what you're doing for the department. <laughs> this was a lot of fun I to talk take about a, really terrible I things. Take just one quick <laughs> second and just go right to, Thank you so much. as I was saying, as okay, we discussed, our coworker who yeah. had passed away that, that weekend, the weekend before, no, not to get personal, but to anyone out there yeah. who's listening, anyone who's ever had it on your mind, his family was nice enough and fucking brave enough, you know, as far as I'm concerned to have him stay on life support long enough that they could harvest all of his organs. So if you're, if you've ever thought about ever doing organ donation, anything along those lines, um, I strongly recommend it. I've been an organ donor since the day I turned 18. It's just a a wonderful thing to have, you know, God forbid you're ever in that situation. Yeah. Someone else can benefit from it. I have a, I actually have a friend who received a donated heart. She's was in her twenties and, um, she needed a heart transplant. You never know whether you could need somebody's organs, which is the, a very creepy thing to say. Or that's it. That, you I'm off my high horse. I'm yours, done. But absolutely sign up to be an organ donor. That's amazing that they did that. You used to be cool at night. You're just this preachy <laughs> you jerk. Everyone's going to be like, AJ, what happened to you? <laughs> you can have them. Um, so on my license. <laughs> I'm taking all of your organs. <laughs> <sighs> Well, AJ, thank you so, so much. Thank you for tolerating all of our technical difficulties. Well, and I, I appreciate on and, you uh, inviting me. I appreciate the platform. Really and uh, I, I'll never me. pass up the opportunity to talk about, you know, the, the potential issues that we as first responders have and never bringing them to light. I feel like it's uh, something we just owe ourselves and future generations. Yeah, we definitely, we need first responders and we need to make sure that the next generation is healthier than this generation. And we need to help out the, just this generation. Oh, I look forward to Hopefully it. I'll have you cut back on to talk about some lighter topics and maybe some of our more Thank fun calls Thank you. that we've been on together. Right. Thank you to everyone for listening and sticking through this long and not quite as funny as the snake story episode. I hope you liked it and you will give us a good rating and review on iTunes. And if you really liked it, I would say subscribe so you can see what we have in store for you next week. I have no clue what it's going to be, so it will be a wonderful surprise to both of us. And if you want to know more about our podcast and what we have coming in the next few episodes, you should follow us on social media. You follow us on Twitter at Antidotes Pod. You also follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Antidotes Podcast. You can also send us an email at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. If you have any great stories from working in healthcare yourself, please contact us. We would love to hear them and we would love to interview you. Maybe you'll be on the podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.